911. What's your emergency? I've got a gentleman in quarantine with a gun. Um, I need someone here right now. I'm the store manager. Now. Okay, where is he in the store, sir? In the sporting goods. Now. He's if you've ever now. picked up the phone to call 911, chances are, in that moment, you or someone else needed help. Badly. Okay, hang on. Do not hang up the phone with me, okay? And you probably assumed that after dialing those three numbers, help would come screeching around the corner, lights and sirens blaring. Well, some people say that depends on where you live. Um, when I called, no one showed up. If you just sit there and be like, oh, African-American was just shot and stuff like that, they'll take, like, hours to get there. I wouldn't feel comfortable calling 911. I wouldn't unless it was like I was dying. Those are residents of East and West Oakland. Urban communities of color where there is a lot of murders and police brutality and discrimination. The paramedics say that, you know, they don't they don't get a call based on anybody's color, which is true. They get a call based on a neighborhood and they know certain neighborhoods are black neighborhoods or brown neighborhoods, people of color neighborhoods. When these two women became convinced that 911 was just not responding fast enough to their neighborhood, they decided to do something about it. They created the People's Community Medics. We came together and formed a plan to cushion in between the medics getting there and the the time of the incident. What led these women and these residents to lose faith in 911? Over the next hour, we will answer that question as we trace the path of a 911 call in Oakland. From the dispatchers... 911 emergency, where you reporting? ...to the emergency responders. I could care less skin color, where they live, what their cultural teachings are. I want to help them out. I want to make sure they get to the care they need. And we'll see how that all figures into a crisis that has been brewing in Oakland for decades. When two women come out in the street in Oakland and say, we need to form... Uh, an organization to address our problems, then um, they're speaking back 40 years of neglect, 40 years of misunderstanding. We're dying. We're dropping like flies. This is a 911. This is an emergency. This is something that should be broadcasted all around the world. I'm your host, Martina Castro, and this is The Race to an Emergency, a documentary by KALW in San Francisco. Stay with us. We start off in West Oakland at a pirate radio station. The founders of the People's Community Medics have a weekly show, and they talk openly about the issues they have with 911 and what they're doing about it. Reporter Ali Butner has more. Okay, we're going we're gonna to fade in in just a minute. This is Mike One. The tiny room is covered with posters and stickers, stacks of CDs and twisted-up cables. Leslie Phillips is at the mic. Welcome to the People's Community Medics on Berkeley Liberation Radio. And this is your hood first lady and sister T. Leslie comes off as grounded and warm. Her radio name, First Lady, fits her. 
She flashes a wide smile as she passes the mic to Sister T, her friend and co-host Sharina Thomas. I want to give a shout out to my son Dante. He's out there playing football for the Dynamite. Sharina is a mother of four, and while Leslie is steadfast. Sharina's fiery. They play off of each other every Saturday during their show, where they mix music with talk about racism and police repression. Their theme song kind of sets the tone. Nine One One is a joke. The song is from Public Enemy's 1990 hit album "Fear of a Black Planet." It criticizes Nine One One responders for always being late to calls from black neighborhoods. They only come and they come when they want to. So get the more truck and then bomb the corner. They don't care because they stay. I met Leslie and Sharina at a community picnic where they explained why they chose this song. You know, it's been like 20 years since Public Enemy wrote a song called 911 is a joke. And it's still true to this day that they don't often come at the time that they should come. You know, and they don't often provide the kind of care that they should provide. That's why, in 2011, Leslie and Sharina founded the People's Community Medics. Their goal was to train their neighbors in basic first aid, so that when there was an emergency, they could do something to keep people alive as they waited for help. We came together and formed a plan to cushion in between. The medics getting there, and and the end the time of the incident. Leslie and Sharina say 911 is slow in responding to all kinds of emergencies in their neighborhoods. So their trainings include how to deal with things like seizures, but their main concern is for victims of violence. In 2012, there were 131 murders in Oakland, and most of them happened in the neighborhoods where Leslie and Sharina live. The statistics show that a disproportionate percentage of the victims were black. So this is not just a geographic or class issue for Leslie and Sharina; it's inherently a racial one. During one of my interviews with the People's Community Medics, I meet Sharina's 17-year-old daughter Nikki. While we're talking about 911, there's a moment when Sharina turns to her and says, "What you want me to tell the tell the ambulance driver if something happens?" That I'm white and that I need help and that I'm in distress and I look like I got a lot of money. Why? Why would you want her to tell him that? So like, because they'll be fast. Like they'll be in a hurry to get to where they gotta go. Because if they, if you just sit there and be like, oh, African American was just shot and stuff like that, they'll take like hours to get there. That's Nikki Thomas speaking with reporter Ali Budner. So, do other Oakland residents think about 911 the way Nikki does? We sent producers Seth Samuel and Alyssa Kapnick out to talk to people in both affluent and lower-income parts of the city. This is what some of them had to say. My name's Charles Rogers.、Uh, I live in North Oakland. Shootings be going on in Oakland, and they don't they don't respond as fast as they should when stuff go go on like that. Why do you think that is? I don't. I, I actually I think they be too busy, but I'm not sure. That's what they tell us when they get there, but I'm not sure.、Uh, my name is Corita Scott. I'm from East Oakland. When you call Berkeley, no one police dispatch. 
ambulance. They're coming like that. You probably won't even get off the phone good and they'll be there. But out here in Oakland, no. Do you think if you were white that they would come more quickly? Do you think that plays into it? I think they can tell the area. If it's West Oakland, uh, killing, another killing, oh well, you know, let me, they're dead. I definitely think that it depends on what neighborhood you're in. My name is Lydia Moray, and I live in Rockridge in North Oakland. I think definitely, like, if you're in West Oakland, you're probably not high on the list. Why do you think that is? I think that the perception is that violence that happens in East and West Oakland is about who lives there. Uh, My name is Mercedes Gibson. I live in West Oakland neighborhood. I hear, like, gunshots and that, you know? And um, no one ever comes. Poor people's lives and black people's lives and people of color's lives are just valued differently than white people who have money, I would say. Also, class is a part of it. It's painful to talk about. So those Oakland residents echo what Sharina Thomas and Leslie Phillips say about 911 that it's slower in responding to their neighborhoods, or as Sharina put it, urban communities of color. The thing is, few of us know what happens when we call 911 from anywhere. It turns out that the path of that call varies city to city, and it also depends on whether you call from a landline or a cell phone. So as we take a closer look at the emergency response system in Oakland, we're going to trace the path of a 911 call from a cell phone starting at the beginning. Now, whether you're in the flatlands of East Oakland or the wealthier neighborhoods of the Oakland Hills, reporter Ali Budner found that first, your call goes here. This is CHP's giant call center in Vallejo. It's about 30 miles north of Oakland. CHP stands for California Highway Patrol. That's the agency that handles all of Oakland's 911 calls from cell phones. In fact, Oakland is the only large city in California to still depend on the CHP for this service. 911 emergency, where are you reporting? The first person you talk to is... My name is Rick Rocha. Or one of his colleagues. I'm a CHP uh, dispatcher. Rick Rocha sits at a station with four computer screens, two keyboards, and two mice. He uses all of them to get information about you and your emergency. And then I hit a button that sends that information immediately over to the radio, and from there, I am completely done with my particular part of the job. When he says the radio, he means another dispatcher sitting across the room under a wall of colorful highway maps. She has a radio connection to other agencies, so if you're calling from the scene of a crime, like a shooting, then she'll transfer you to another dispatch center. All right, Lindy, hold on just a second. Let me get you over to Oakland Police, okay? One minute. And zoom, we go from Vallejo to the OPD Dispatch Center in East Oakland. Oakland Police, Dispatcher 90. Olivia Moy is one of the OPD dispatchers who picks up these calls. Uh, How much time usually goes uh, by in between calls that you get? Depending on the day and the time, I would say maybe less than a minute. When Olivia picks up, be prepared to answer a series of questions. And yeah, you may have already been asked the same questions earlier by Rick Rocha. Basically, that's to make sure that the details don't change or get lost in this big game of telephone. It doesn't mean we're not sending the police out. It just means we need to know this information to tell the police officers to let's catch the suspects, 
as they're running away so the police don't drive past them. Now that Olivia has your information in the computer, she pushes a button and sends it to the other side of the room. To... Waleen Jones. I am a 911 dispatcher here. So I'm looking at the severity of the call, what type of call it is, um, the person who's involved in any guns, weapons, so on and so forth. While Olivia talks to the callers, Waleen is talking to the officers out on the street. She's kind of like a director behind the scenes. She uses a series of codes to decide which calls take priority. So sirens is code three, no sirens is code two. So that's how they kind of, you know, they get that intel from me to turn them on, turn them off. But these directions can change as emergencies unfold in real time. Waleen says callers often get impatient and frustrated with her as they wait for help. They're being robbed, they're being shot at, they're walking in seeing something excessively devastating for them. You're sitting behind a desk asking all of these questions, and in their mind, I don't want to answer the questions, I want to cop. And trying to get them to understand my conversation with them doesn't stop the officers from driving. Okay, so just to recap a bit, you've called 911, and the first person you talked to was Rick Rocha. 911 emergency, where you reporting? Then you were transferred to another dispatcher at CHP, who sent you to Olivia Moy with the Oakland Police Department. Okay, Andrew, I can't guarantee when we'll have an available officer, but we'll send someone out as soon as we can. And then you were bounced across the room to Wallene Jones, who sent your information to a police officer on the street. I'm saying to him, go, go lights and sirens. So that's four dispatchers so far. And if you told Olivia Moy that someone on the scene is hurt, then you'd already have been transferred to another dispatch center. Oakland Fire Department, what's the address of your emergency? Firefighters are the designated first responders to any medical emergency. And of course, fires. They're all trained to be emergency medical technicians, or EMTs. And at least one member of each crew is a paramedic who has more advanced medical training. Okay, and now let me ask you this. Is he completely alert? Dispatcher Terry Woodard answers a call from a school where a student is having an allergy attack from eating a cookie. This call skipped OPD and came directly to the fire department. Does he have difficulty breathing or swallowing? Terry sends this information to a dispatcher across the room, who then sends it to the fire engine closest to the scene and to the next call center. Yes, there's another one. It's up at the Livermore Lab in the Oakland Hills, and they alert the ambulance paramedics. So basically right now, just reassure him, let him know the help's on the way. Don't let him have anything to eat or drink right now. Because the ambulance service is the only part of Oakland's 911 response that's privately run. It's provided by the company Paramedics Plus. By the time the ambulance is on its way, two more dispatchers have handled your call. So that's a total of four call centers and eight dispatchers before it's all over. If it all goes smoothly, this whole process should only take a few minutes. But Rick Rocha over at CHP says you really can't predict how long a call will take. Um, some calls can last for m- numerous minutes, depending on what the severity of the, of this, you know, the emergency is. Uh, Other calls, I can process them in 10 to 15 seconds. Many things can complicate a call. If a caller doesn't speak English, they have to get an interpreter on the line. Cell reception might be bad. And then there are human errors like typos or misunderstandings. All these things can translate into seconds or even minutes of delay. (laughs) 
That's reporter Ali Budner. I'm Martina Castro, and you're listening to The Race to an Emergency, a documentary by KALW. Tracing out a pressure, 80 over 27. When we return, we continue to trace the path of a 911 call with the designated first responders, firefighters. Heart rate at 86. And we see all these cops just coming where we were, guns drawn, you know, and they're waving us, get back, get back. That's when the race to an emergency continues. What you want me to tell the pe- tell the ambulance driver if something happens? That I'm white and that I need help and I look like I got a lot of money. Welcome back to The Race to an Emergency, a documentary by KALW in San Francisco. I'm Martina Castro. Today we're taking a look at the 911 response system in Oakland through the eyes of the people who depend on it and those who work within it. You just heard about the web of dispatchers that your 911 call can go through. Reporter Ali Budner joins us now. Ali, your reporting revealed other issues at play, depending on where you are when you dial 911. That's right. First off, more people are calling 911 in East and West Oakland. These are areas where average income is lower, and so people call 911 for general health problems. But it's also where violent crime is concentrated in the city. And when someone calls from an emergency that's also the scene of a crime that changes how the response goes, it triggers a policy called staging. Staging means that police have to arrive on the scene and declare it safe before medics can treat anyone who's wounded. The policy is actually designed to protect medics because they're unarmed. So even if the medics get there first, they have to park around the corner and wait for the police to arrive. Yes, and often those are the firefighters. They're the designated first responders to any medical emergency. So let's continue tracing the path of a 911 call with you. After the web of dispatchers, Ali, you spent a day with an Oakland fire crew. So today, big things that we have going on. This is Tracy Chin. She's the captain on duty at Station 17, right in the middle of Oakland, on High Street. They average 10 to 13 calls per 24-hour shift. The thing I get immediately is that this little unit, made up of an EMT, a paramedic, an engineer, and a captain, is like a family for the 24 hours they're on shift together. And it's this camaraderie that really makes a difference when they respond to an emergency. When a call comes in, Tracy says, First off, you're going to hear um, what's called a klaxon. And basically it's a kind of like a, a bell that goes off. As we're talking, sure enough, the klaxon goes off. Is that a call? Sometimes, yes. What? All right, this one's ours. It's in our district, so we'll go to this one. So that trip that you're going to take to the bathroom, forget it. Right? <laughs> We arrive exactly three minutes after the call came into the fire station. There's nothing about this call that's dangerous enough to require staging, so they can approach the scene as soon as they arrive. 
Their patient is a 12-year-old African-American boy, and we find him standing in the parking lot of a fast food restaurant. He's shaking and crying, holding his hand near his throat. Oakland police are already on the scene. A man who seems to be the boy's dad stands a bit away from him. Tracy gathers information about what happened, while the rest of the crew tries to keep the boy comfortable and calm. Five minutes after we get there, the ambulance medics arrive, and the fire crew catches them up on what's happening. Emergencies like this one are complicated because it's not clear what happened, and the various responders don't always agree on what should be done. One of the police officers believes the boy's overreacting, but Tracy wants to make sure the patient is fully checked out. Yeah, but I mean, you know, you know how it goes. We got to cover it. Once the ambulance paramedics take over, we climb back into the fire engine, and another call comes in. What's this for? We don't know what the call's for until the engine is well on its way. That's because, as first responders, firefighters don't categorize calls into high or low priority. They just go. We end up at an apartment building in another neighborhood. Tracy, we got a pressure 80 over 27. This scene is very different from the previous one. It involves an elderly woman who can barely move when we find her in bed. 92%. Heart rate at 86. This kind of contrast between emergencies is common for a fire crew and leaves little room for discriminating between calls. When I ask Tracy Chin whether it's possible for racial profiling to be an issue in her work, she says no. Not on my end. I mean, you know, whenever there's a call for service, I mean, that's a call for service. doesn't matter what it is. But Tracy says it's important for the public to understand why they might have to wait for 911. So, like, I'll take you over to the map. So this is where our station is, right here on um, High Street, okay, right at Porter. So if we get a call for service... She says wait times really depend on how many emergencies are happening in the range of a given station. So in areas where there are more 911 calls... Engines are often sent in from other neighborhoods to meet the demand. So, I mean, you see the proximity of where, where that station would have to travel. It's a longer travel time. And she says there's an added challenge. Often people in the midst of an emergency aren't gauging time accurately. We can have, you know, statistics that show that we arrive on scene within two minutes, but people are like, what took you so long? And, and I don't want to discount anybody's feelings. Just I think a lot of it has to do with education about how the system works. and She's referring in large part to the staging policy, which is designed to keep firefighters and paramedics safe. Rob Thrower, the crew's engineer, has seen the need for staging firsthand. We went on the call, and, you know, we were staging, and we see all these cops just coming where we were, guns drawn, you know, and they're waving us, get back, get back. I put that second reverse. I looked in the mirror, we clear, we clear. We drove, we, we, got, we got out of there. You know, so staging, you stage for our safety because if one of us get hurt, it's going to be, makes it even more difficult to try to, you know, help somebody. But he understands why this policy is frustrating for people. When you, when you do stage, you don't want to be, you don't want them to see you. You know, because typically we'll get a, you know, whatever the case may be. And we'll stage and I'll turn the lights off and just be off in the cut somewhere, you know. <laughs> you know, just, you know, taking a look. Um, yeah, you do not want them to, you know, 
you right there. Come on, my man is there. Hurry up. You know, and, and you're just like, oh, you know, what do you do? You know, people run up to the rig. Hey, with a, with a person. Hey, boss. It's a troubling reality that responders sometimes have to hide from the people they're racing to help. It's an example of what Leslie Phillips and Sharina Thomas of the People's Community Medics say is so confusing and frustrating about 911. And at least in this case, it's frustrating for the responders, too. That's reporter Ali Budner, and you're listening to The Race to an Emergency. I'm Martina Castro. So the scene Rob Thrower just described of firefighters staging around the corner from an emergency. You don't want them to see you. Well, Leslie Phillips from the People's Community Medics explains how this looks to the people who are there waiting for help. When the people in the community see an ambulance sitting on the corner for 20 minutes and they're not responding to the person in need, then it does create some hostility and some anger because the people don't know that that's what the situation is. Ali Budner joins me again in studio. Now, Ali, the role that police play in deciding when the scene is safe is another issue for the people's community medics. Yes. Sharina Thomas, Leslie's partner, says that's because many people in her community have a difficult relationship with the police. I think it's more racial profiling. We are ready. If we are out together and it's five or more uh, people of color, we already considered a gang. So just imagine what they consider people standing around somebody that's being shot. You know, they consider us as unsafe anyway. I think that there has to be a better way to determine if the scene is safe. I don't think that it should be solely up to the police. But it is. And that means the response time to these 911 calls really depends on how fast the police get there. So, Allie, how long does it generally take OPD to get to the scene? Well, in 2010, the department said their average was almost 15 minutes for top priority calls. But by 2012, the OPD had reduced its force by almost 200 officers. In 2013, an article published in the San Francisco Chronicle said that the average had actually gone up to around 17 minutes. So if that's how long it takes for police to arrive, that means victims are waiting for medical attention for at least that long. Yeah, and this is where the training from the People's Community Medics comes in. Ali, you went to one of the first trainings they gave back in the spring of 2012. It was at an Occupy Oakland picnic. Take us back to that moment. Leslie takes control of a mic connected to a small, makeshift PA system. It's set up in the middle of Defremery Park in West Oakland. Leslie stands under an easy-up tent and scrawls out a few words with bullet points next to them on a big sheet of paper. They read, 1. Do no harm. 2. Call 911. 3. Rescue position. So uh, usually we have some fake blood, but today... We're kind of out of fake blood. So just use your imaginations, y'all. And we do have um, a little gunshot scenario. Pow, pow! <laughs> oh, okay. oh, my God. What happened? She got shot. She got shot. Sharina pretends she's shooting a volunteer. The victim falls to the ground. So what you would do in this case is 
you would uh, look for the entry wound, which is usually a small, a small spot, but the exit wound is a big spot where the blood will be. And so you want to apply pressure on both the entry and the exit wound. By this time, a small crowd, maybe 10 people, has gathered to watch. A few are taking notes. So you want to hold the blood in there, keep applying pressure. That's why we handed out these packets with the rubber gloves and the gauze, because that's what you would use. You would put your rubber gloves on. You don't want to touch blood with your bare hands. And you want to use the gauze to apply pressure. You can just use a plastic bag or anything that um, you can use to seal in the, the pressure and the blood, rather. So um, the same thing is that you want to stay there with the person applying pressure until 911 comes. And when they come, then they're going to take over. But you may just be saving somebody's life by doing that. Leslie and Sharina have first aid certificates from Red Cross. They've done a few trainings, including wilderness first aid for the streets and some informal one-on-one -on -one training with a nurse they know. So their medical skills are still pretty basic. We are not here to replace 911. We are here to add life to our people before 911 gets there. Before 911 gets there, that's the key. Because even when help is on its way, sometimes it's not fast enough. So Leslie and Sharina prepare people for that reality by encouraging them to call 911 and teaching them how to jump in when they otherwise might have had to just stand by and wait. Thank you very much, Sharina. That's reporter Ali Budner. That's it. We're done. Any questions? So who were people at the scene of an emergency really waiting for? Firefighters may be the first responders, but they're really only treating people until the ambulance gets there. Because only ambulance paramedics can take someone to a hospital. So as we continue tracing the path of a 911 call in Oakland, Ali joins paramedic supervisor Jason Murphy on one of his overnight shifts. He works with the private ambulance company Paramedics Plus, which serves Oakland and other cities in Alameda County. The routine of an ambulance medic is a lot like that of other emergency responders. Periods of waiting and driving around, punctuated by short bursts of intense adrenaline. Yeah, we're driving west, 580, into Oakland, because um, Oakland is my zone. As a supervisor, Jason Murphy oversees all the calls that come in during his shift. I'm basically hooked uh, to the CAD, so CAD stands for Computer Aided Dispatch. I can see all the calls that have gone out in the county and um, the information regarding the call, like what it may be for. Excuse me. Mm -hmm. EMS 1102, this is Jason. And just like that, casual talk is over, and we speed towards a call involving a bicyclist and a car. These are our sirens right now? Yeah. People driving home from work, bicyclists running red lights and no helmets on. Never ceases to amaze me. This is our call. Two and a half minutes after getting the call, we pull up to a West Oakland intersection, already crowded with emergency vehicles. A police officer is interrogating the driver who struck the cyclist. A fire engine and an ambulance are parked, responders already out and surrounding a man who's laying on the street. His bike is beside him. 
Okay, we're going to take your helmet off here. All right. Pop this helmet off. Pop back. All right. Don't move your head. Any pain in your head when I touch your head? No. Any pain in your head when I touch your neck? No. It all goes pretty fast. The fallen cyclist is whisked away to the hospital by the ambulance. Since Jason is a supervisor, his role is just to help out and make sure everything is running smoothly. Jason says a call can take about an hour and 20 minutes. From start to completion includes driving to it, getting the patient, doing treatments, becoming available for, for the next one. We have delays sometimes if we're that busy. This is one of these things where it's just, we could have 100 ambulances out here and still be busy. Yeah. It's just it's the way it goes. Jason says that's because he gets more non-emergency calls in East and West Oakland. I think people that are more affluent probably tend to have insurance and or tend to have uh, more education. And they realize maybe, is this a problem where I need the emergency services to show up or is it a problem where I can just go to my doctor? I tell Jason about the people's community medics who feel that 911 responders don't do as good a job when serving their neighborhoods. He leans away from me and looks out his window. It def- definitely kind of makes me a little, uh, I want to say annoyed. I mean, if that's the right word for it. Um, I can certainly sympathize with them feeling disenfranchised for their area, but the reality is there's nobody here that says, oh, I'm not going to drive this call that fast because it's in this area. No. Wrong. I could care less skin color, where they live, what their cultural teachings are. Did they get shot in commission of a crime? Doesn't matter to me. I'm going to try to save their life. But ideally, not at the risk of his own. When I ask him about the staging policy, Jason is unequivocal. It's necessary. And even after staging, he still gets into dangerous situations. I was on a shooting call, and this was in Hayward. It was in Hayward. It was in the middle of an apartment complex, an older apartment complex. And this poor gentleman was shot on the ground. And all we know is the shooter could be in the crowd up in these upper floor apartments on these balconies looking down on us. And there was a lot of people looking down what's going on. I can't tell you how uncomfortable that was, you know? The fact that someone wanted this guy dead, and someone in this crowd possibly has shot him. And we're right there. And so are the police. Because after something like a shooting, they have to collect evidence. And that's why the scene of an emergency is inherently messy, with multiple agencies responding at different times, occasionally getting in each other's way. That's why Jason Murphy has reservations about another group in the mix, like the People's Community Medics. Ultimately, Jason thinks the medics could do more good if they worked with existing agencies. Why don't they go to the the county public health agency? and say, this is what we're doing in our little corner of the world. Um, We want to contribute, be an an adjunct to what's already existing. How can we go about it that would help, you know, people out the greatest? That's paramedic Jason Murphy with reporter Allie Budner. Coming up, we continue tracing the path of a 911 call with the third responding agency. Oakland Police, dispatcher 90. Oakland Police. Truly, the the joke about 911 is not the EMTs, it's the police. It's the 911 part of us having to go through the police to even get help. That's when the race to an emergency continues.
Shootings. Anyone from any color, race, religion, background can have a gun. Disturbances when people are arguing and aren't getting along. I know people would want to do something if they knew. If they knew what to do, they would do it. Stabbings or other types of crime. We are not here to replace 911. We are here to add life to our people before 911 gets there. Welcome back to The Race to an Emergency, a documentary from KALW in San Francisco. I'm Martina Castro. Reporter Ali Budner joins me now in studio. We're going to continue tracing the path of a 911 call with an Oakland police officer. But first, we want to take a step back. There's a lot of history that goes into the relationship between police and Oaklanders, especially African-Americans. It's why the founders of the People's Community Medics say their concerns with 911 are not exactly about the firefighters or the paramedics, but about the police. Antagonism between the police and African-American communities has been ongoing for quite a long time. That's Benjamin Bowser, a sociology professor emeritus at Cal State University of the East Bay. He's studied race relations in Oakland for decades. Well, it started with the recruiting of um, Southern whites as um, the police force in the 1930s. There was an influx of African-Americans to Oakland at the time. Many were fleeing the Jim Crow South. And in the 40s, people were coming for jobs in the booming shipyards. Between 1940 and 1944, Oakland's black population increased by 250 percent. Benjamin Bowser says this triggered racism that spread through the job force and housing market at the time. If you were black, you could not buy a home in Castro Valley. I remember very clearly when you got to the Oakland-San Leandro city line, the San Leandro police were right there waiting for you. And half the time they'd stop you if you were black. Racial tensions intensified over the years, and across the country, this culminated in the race riots of the 1960s. Firemen were harassed by snipers and brick-throwing hoodlums as they attempted to control the fires, many of which were left to burn themselves out. Law enforcement's brutal response to these riots gave rise to groups like the Black Panthers. And the people are going to have to attack the pigs. The people are going to have to stand up against the pigs. That's what the Panthers are doing. That's what the Panthers are doing all over the world. They basically said, well, look, you know, the police are going around the neighborhood brutalizing people. They're not doing their job. Uh, Someone needs to monitor and watch them. So the first Panther activities were to follow the police with arms. But then the the drug war hit. I mean, we can we can date things for East West Oakland pre-drugs and post-drugs. By the 1980s, Oakland was a focal point in the war on drugs. That set the stage for the infamous case of four Oakland police officers in the 1990s who called themselves the Rough Riders. The Riders were a group of police officers uh, who patrolled East and West Oakland. They were noted to be very effective, very good. They tried to be the first ones to respond to be on the scene. And they eventually were caught planting evidence and uh, giving false testimony on uh, people who they arrested. There were more than 100 plaintiffs in this federal civil rights lawsuit, and they ultimately settled with the city for millions of dollars. Three of the four officers were acquitted. The fourth fled the country. As part of the settlement in 2003, the city had to agree to major reforms in the OPD, and the department was assigned a federal monitor. 
Now, a decade later, the department still hasn't met all of those mandated reforms. There's been no reform in police practices uh, that produce that kind of, uh, of culture and mentality. You have a continuation of the, of the war on drugs and police harassment. There are just fewer of them. Then um, it's no coincidence that people say 911 is a joke, not simply because you don't get a response, but when you get a response, you get a heavy-handed response. Again, Sharina Thomas of the People's Community Medics. We're not even safe from the police with our kids riding up and down the street and all of that stuff. We're not even safe from that. So they're killing our kids. When Sharina says police, that term really extends to all officers who carry guns. And when she says our kids, she's mostly talking about young African-American men, like Gary King Jr., killed by an OPD officer in 2007. Oscar Grant, killed by a BART police officer in 2009. Derek Jones, killed by an OPD officer in 2010. Raheem Brown, killed by an Oakland school police officer in 2011. Alan Bluford, killed by an OPD officer in 2012. Since the year 2000, 39 people have been killed by Oakland police officers. At least 19 of the people shot were unarmed. That's according to a 2013 San Jose Mercury News investigation. Sharina Thomas says her concern is not only for those shot by officers, but also for their families. Our heart breaks when these mothers cry. We run like we are the ambulance to these mothers, and it's just, it's heartbreaking. And I just wish that we would be recognized enough to where we can add help into our communities and not treat us like we are the enemy. Again, sociologist Benjamin Bowser. We've had these highly publicized incidents at least once a year. This has been absolutely inflamed uh, a new generation of young people who who may not have known about the rioters or uh, the early Southerners who patrolled the police department. But uh, it certainly gives them a sense that it's very dangerous to be a person of color uh, in Oakland. This is The Race to an Emergency, a documentary from KALW in San Francisco. I'm Martina Castro. So now let's finish tracing the path of a 911 call in Oakland with the Oakland police. Here's Allie. 107, I cover the cover. Brian Murphy's beat is in West Oakland. It's a mix of residential couple kind of commercial streets, San Pablo Avenue, and then a lot of... From the front seat of his patrol car, I see that mix as we drive down San Pablo. It feels strange all of a sudden to be looking at this street I know through the frame of a police car window. People and places seem distant, as if I'm watching them on a movie screen. And I notice the people noticing the police car. A call comes in. A security guard at the Sears in downtown Oakland says he saw a man who might have a gun in his waistband, and there could be another guy with him. So we're going to try to meet up, um, tactically pull ourselves together, get some sort of a game plan. What's going through your mind as, right as you pull up to a scene? Uh, well, right now, I mean, it's, it's our safety. It's the safety of the officer I'm with who's covering. He's going to be covering me. We pull up to where they've located the suspects. Hang out right here for a second. He and six other officers approach the scene. Is 
It's uncomfortable to watch. The officers are aggressive with the suspects. I can't hear what's going on, but it looks like the men are cooperating. Okay. So, they don't have a gun on them. From what the loss prevention guy at Sears saw, what he described to us, it appears that he did not actually see a gun. One of these gentlemen did, did have was a bottle of tequila that he said he was holding underneath his front belt. We drive a few blocks and park, where Brian can take notes on what just took place. Brian says when responding to a call like this one, where someone is possibly armed, he has to prepare for the worst. In this circumstance, I mean, granted, this is downtown Oakland uh, on a Friday afternoon, so there's a lot of people out here. You have to be concerned, again, for the citizens being safe. We need these two people who are being detained to be safe. Do you see, in any piece of the puzzle, do you see racial profiling as something that that factors uh, into it? No, I don't. But as you know, I mean, it's anyone from any color, race, religion background can have a gun, regardless of what they look like. Back at OPD headquarters, I get the official response on racial profiling from communications supervisor Regina Harris-Gilliard. There's cultural diversity training and there's community policing here, so the department has all kind of training requirements when it comes to dealing with the community and those people of diverse cultures. It's a part of our professional, continuous professional training for officers that's done. Brian says he doesn't see race affecting his work as a police officer, and he has gone through the department's diversity training. But still, racial profiling has been a big problem for the OPD as an organization. In August of 2013, for example, a report by the ACLU and two other groups found that the Oakland police were disproportionately arresting African-American youth. In 80% of these arrests, there wasn't enough evidence to prove they had done anything wrong. We have a tendency to get more calls from districts five and six in the city that's out in the east end of town. I think most of our calls are in those areas. Areas where the majority of residents are African-American. Jonna Watson is the public information officer for OPD. Typically that's where we have shootings, we have disturbances where people are arguing and aren't getting along, or we have stabbings or other types of crime. And Officer Brian Murphy says they are often under intense pressure. Some scenes can be extremely chaotic. Um, if, if it happens in a crowded area, um, you, know, you could literally have you know, 10, 20, 30, upwards of, of literally 100 people can come out, surround the area. So that's when officers rely heavily on their training. It's a major part of how they approach their work, even when they're not actively responding to an incident. There's little training and tactics, things that we do, you know, when we park our cars, when we go and get, uh, you know, coffee or use a restroom at a gas station. I mean, there's ways that we position ourselves so we can see the doors. We know who's coming in, who's coming out. Um, A lot of it, after a few years, hopefully becomes kind of a sixth sense. But you need to to practice a lot of these tactics so you don't get stale, so you don't slip up. Because the day, you know, you might slip up, something could happen. Who knows? That constant need to be ready for something to go wrong and to not slip up, I can see how that approach could put residents on edge around an officer. So even though Brian says most of the feedback he gets from Oaklanders is positive, sometimes... Sometimes we'll get to a a scene where someone 
you know, sees the the fire department coming or the paramedics or the police, and and they will, you know, maybe drop an f bomb and say, "I don't want your help. I don't need your help." And again, that could be for a variety of reasons. Brian wishes people could hold on to the instances when things go well, but he doesn't see a way to heal from what's happened in the past without having more communication. Maybe you know, an officer can, once you do develop a relationship, can help explain. Um, why we do some of the things we do, whether it's, you know, tactics or the way we approach calls. And do those conversations happen? They do. They do happen. I, for, I'm fortunate enough to have had, had those conversations again with people who, who I've arrested in the past. And they'll say, you know, they'll ask questions about why we did what we did, and sometimes they'll give insight on why they did what they did, too. Who knows? But I think, you know, obviously open and non- honest conversations... Uh, can help everybody. That's Officer Brian Murphy speaking with reporter Ali Butner. You're listening to The Race to an Emergency, a documentary from KALW. I'm Martina Castro, joined by reporter Ali Butner. We began this hour with a question. Is 911 really slower in the neighborhoods that Sharina Thomas calls urban communities of color? On the medical side of things, meaning firefighters and paramedics, it turns out the answer is yes. The longest response time for regular medical calls is in a neighborhood in East Oakland, and it's nine minutes. But when it comes to calls for violent injuries, it's not as dramatic a difference. The longest wait time is actually in the North Oakland Hills at six and a half minutes, The next highest are in East and West Oakland, hovering around five and a half minutes. And as we said earlier, when it comes to the scene of a crime, police are the responders who really determine how quickly someone gets help. Their response times are a bit trickier to calculate because the OPD doesn't consistently keep track of them. We found this out after many conversations with crime analysts and communications officers at OPD. Their chief of staff, Holly Joshi, said thanks to the questions we raised, the department is now going to update procedures and equipment so they can do a better job of documenting their response times. For now, the only average response time we have for OPD is 17 minutes, which was reported earlier this year by the San Francisco Chronicle. But there's no way of knowing yet how that average breaks down by neighborhood. So while we haven't been able to fully answer the questions raised by the People's Community Medics, what's become clear is that behind all of the policies and procedures, frustrations and emotions are individuals who often don't communicate until there's an emergency, until someone calls 911. There was one such encounter on an Oakland street corner in late November of 2012. There, all the emergency responders and the people's community medics came face to face over the body of a dying 19-year-old male. He was the victim of a gunshot wound. The following morning, Ali met up with the people's community medics on that same corner. It's a cold November morning when I meet up with Leslie and Sharina at the corner of 61st and San Pablo in North Oakland. Last night, they were here under very different circumstances. When we got here, we saw a boy laid out in the street who had obviously been shot, and he was being attended to by um, four paramedics from the Oakland Fire Department. The police were also there. Who began taping off the area with crime scene tape and pushing us out of the area. 
Emergency responders were already in action, so Leslie and the other community medics just watched. There were a number of people from the community around on the sidewalk watching as well. From what they could see, the victim was getting appropriate treatment, and he was taken away to the hospital. Where I presume he died. They don't know his name, just that he was riding a bicycle. And uh, somebody came out of a building on this block and shot him. And how did that um, how did that affect the feeling of your the event that you well were doing? that really um, all disturbed all of us tremendously because we were watching a life being taken away, you know, and it's a painful thing to watch a young person, especially a young person, die in the street from a gunshot wound. What was also painful to Leslie was to see 30 people standing around, looking like they didn't know what else to do. People really, truly care about youth and the violence. And I know people would want to do something if they knew. If they knew what to do, they would do it. So Leslie and Sharina are here today on this corner to do a smaller version of their basic first aid training. We just know that there's a great need to be self-sufficient, and we know that what our children is going through is something that we can't no longer get used to. We're dying. We're dropping like flies. It's, this is a 911. This is an emergency. This is something that should be broadcasted all around the world. It's not the individual that is the problem here. Again, sociologist Benjamin Bowser. It's not an issue of two women who are crazy or uh, a bunch of people who are in, uh, they, they, uh, in positions to respond and they are just indifferent. Uh, that's generally where the story goes. The problem is in the organization of the response. What Benjamin Bowser is talking about goes beyond improving response times or educating people about complex policies. It's really about rebuilding trust so that all people can dial 911 and know they will get help. The Race to an Emergency was a production of KALW in San Francisco. It was reported by Ali Budner, co-written and produced by myself, Martina Castro, with assistant producer Alyssa Kapnick, and mixed by Seth Samuel. Ben Trefney was our executive editor. Holly Kernan is our news director. Thanks to our fact-checkers, Mary Willis and Ray Sue Sussman. And a special thank you to the People's Community Medics, Paramedics Plus, the Oakland Police and Fire Departments, and Joshua English with Alameda County's Public Health Department. Over the year that Allie Budner has been reporting this, she collected many interviews and stories that we couldn't include in this hour. Please go to KALW.org to see some of those posted there, along with photos and data maps that show the concentration of calls in Oakland, along with response times. Also, there are direct phone numbers for dispatch centers both at Oakland Police and the Oakland Fire Department. That means you can bypass calling 911 when you're calling from a cell phone and get to those dispatch centers sooner. Find those at KALW.org. Thank you for listening.